Is it time for your business to pay it back? Hello, I'm William Eastman, executive producer of Richmond Biz Live. And if this is your challenge as a business owner, then don't miss a single show. Either listen live at 10 o'clock every Saturday on WLEE News Talk 990 or download our podcast at richmondbizlive.com. Every show, we tackle those issues in marketing, sales, people, customers, and finance that are limiting your success. If it's time to get paid back for your years of investment and sacrifice, join us this Saturday at 10 o'clock for Richmond Biz Live. Okay, we are here. This is the time. This is the place. You're the person. Welcome to the studios of WLEE News Talk 990 in beautiful but overcast downtown Richmond. This is Richmond Biz Live, a business information show dedicated to business owners and entrepreneurs looking for their payoff. And why are we doing the show? Well, Richmond, like most communities, does a pretty good job of helping startups with uh, incubators, things of that nature. But they don't do a very good job of helping existing businesses. Well, that's our difference. Finally, there is a place that you can go um, as a resource. And if you listen to us on the radio, the only free resource for existing businesses. If your dream hasn't paid you back for all the years of investment and sacrifice, you are in the right place. And so how do you get back on track today and begin realizing the dream of the reason that you started your company? Well, you do that by calling in. Join us at 844 5483. That's 844 or for those of you in a car or uh, numerically challenge 844.bizlive. Okay. Or you can go to our website, Richmond Biz Live. That's Richmond, B-I-Z-L-I-V-E.com. Um, I would tell you that you could click the button and watch us, but uh, we're having some visual problems today. So you can only listen to us. So either hear all the radio station or you listen to us over the net. Of course, we're a radio station. So you know, what the hell? I guess it makes sense. All right. New visitors, our format real quickly. We're a radio Ted. If you're familiar with Ted presentations, each one of these segments are a 15 minute standalone presentation that you don't need to listen to anything else except that. On the other hand, if you listen to all our shows and your regular listener, um, it is integrated and it tells a story. And in this particular case today, with our first, uh, with our first segment, our first thought leader, Andy Schulich, he's going to be talking about productivity. Number two is that everybody we have on, like Andy, is a recognized thought leader. Whether we're talking internationally, we're talking nationally, we're talking locally. In other words, we're talking to people who not only provide this advice to other companies, they run their own companies based upon the advice. As we say in the industry, we eat our own dog food. And number three, is it based upon basically five key questions that every executive asks themselves? In fact, how this show started was my own Saturdays, because what do I ask myself every Saturday at nine o'clock in the morning? Are we on budget? Which means how much cash on hand do I have? And what's my cash flow for the week? Are we on plan where I'm taking a look at sales? Have we closed the deals we're supposed to close? Are we closer? How are we converting uh, our leads? Number three, on schedule. No matter what we do, whether we build products, provide services in retail, we have things that we've obligated to do. Are we getting them done on time? Number four, is like any business that has customers, uh, you get complaints. So what are we doing about resolution? What What's happening about customers who are unhappy about what we're doing? And finally, we're taking a look at the people side of this. What do our metrics say to us? Where are we in terms of productivity and what we're getting day to day from people? And so and basically what we do, I do every day, and what we do in the show is we talk about those five critical metrics. An easier way to look at this is your financials, your company equals sales, plus delivery, plus customers, plus people. And that's basically it. If you want to make good money, take care of the other four. Okay, so this week's show, 
we got three segments. One is on productivity with Andy Schulich from Metamorphosis uh, Management Consulting. And Andy's going to be talking about sharing uh, performance and productivity data and how to use that as an effective tool. Then I've got uh, the performance segment, and I'm William Eastman, managing partner for the Growth Works. And what I'm going to be talking about is how do I make sure we get the right people in the organization, keep them, and we use recognition as a tool. And then I also have the last segment, owner as executive, to all the people out there in small business who have never had the good fortune of being a large corporation and don't understand how your role changes as the company grows. And we're going to be talking about decision-making in the firm. I'd also like to do some shout-outs. First of all, good morning. We got Ryan in Portico in this morning on the panel. Hi, Ryan. Hey, good morning, Bill. How you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing great. Going up uh, north today, going to try and dodge through that uh, Labor Day traffic on my way up 95. So. Wow, I yeah. I do wish you luck because that yeah, the ninety five is a is a disaster yes, most days, is. and so we're lucky to have Ryan in the studio today. Also, I'd like to do a shout out to my partners, Rich Retzer in Kansas City, Missouri, who is managing our mid, mid, Midwest operation, and to Kevin Granger, who is managing our West Coast and Canadian operations out in Las Vegas. Also, our latest new partner, Brian Taylor from the Central Virginia African American Chamber of Commerce. And so with that, let me introduce or reintroduce to the audience, Andy Schulich. Hey, Andy, how you doing, man? Oh, wonderful. How are you today? I am great. I'm rocking now. I know, but I'll tell you, uh, you're a good man because uh, we've had some technical challenges here. So uh, Bill has uh, done an excellent job in addressing this. You have to be <laughs> flexible. Hey, thanks, Andy. Well, the cameras don't work. You know, <laughs> we've had all, you name it, it's happened. It's one of those business days where you go, okay, well, what are we here really to do? Yeah. And so let's not get distracted by the little things. We're here to provide people information about how do they sustain, grow their businesses, how to get it to pay off. And Andy is core to that because his topic area every two weeks is around productivity and processes. Yeah. So today, uh, let's go ahead and look at some factors that influence the uh, company's performance levels. You know, as we have identified in the past, the individual and employee and group membership of employees are the driving forces required to really move a company from the 80% level to the 5% level, which is very, very important. So the question is, and think about this, what is influencing the individual employees and teams of employees to perform differently throughout the 15% level as they go towards the 5 versus the 80% level that they've just came from? which will then increase the company's overall performance. Take just a moment to think about that, maybe in your business, if you've experienced that. Okay. Now let's investigate the, one of the primary influencing factors, and that is gaining knowledge of the company's performance. What do I mean by this? At the 80% level, the company's performance information is kept very close to the ownership of the company. It is like it's not shared with the company's employees. It's almost like it's a dictatorship where the employees are told what to do and they assume that there will always be work for them and they will receive a paycheck. Just It's, it's assumed that. At the 15% level, though, the performance information is recognized as a valuable business tool and it is made available to more employees. So what information is made available and how does it impact the growth of the business? What are your thoughts? 
One of these could be an annual report that may be produced and made available to all. The need and ability to borrow funds drives information availability on the planning, marketing and sales, operations, and financial status of a business. So if you want to get some loans, you have to go ahead and prove that you're worthy to get those. And so that is through information. The number of employees is increasing as we grow in the 15% bracket. Thus, areas of responsibility are being refined and becoming more specialized. Think about that if you have been in a growing company. Thus, to produce a product or provide service takes the coordinated effort of more employees, which drives the need for better communication and distribution of this information because there, you must obtain a good understanding of it. Each employee becomes more active in the development and analysis of their annual personal performance goals. Think about that. You get involved in defining what your goals are and hopefully you have some input into what the outcomes are. So, so let me take Andy's advice here and talk about what we're currently doing, as most of you who listen in know that uh, one of the roles that our organization, the GrowthWorks, has is that we have an executive service where we basically get hired to be vice president of a company and institute our principles. Rather than consulting, which a lot of times is difficult, we come in and we run it so we don't have to I'm not going to say don't ask permission, but you know what I mean. In other words, it's one thing to give advice. It's another thing to implement it. What we're currently doing now is we're, we've got a, a tool called Profit Driver Tree, which is nothing more than what Andy's talking about, where what we're doing is we are with the working supervisors. We are breaking down the financials of the firm so that they have line of sight on how their behaviors affect the financial performance of the company. Now, we're not. there's things that we're not sharing. As most business owners, you get a little queasy when people start talking about sharing all the financials. So we're not sharing salaries. We're not sharing how much money the family's taking home. We're not sharing any of that. What we're talking about is that if you got a frontline job, how are you driving the metrics of the company? Because if you don't know that, how do you fix it? How do you consistently improve? So that's what Andy's talking about here. It's about, it's, it's about doing it and being smart about what you share. Right. And, and a basis of this, when you start to look into deeper, is data gathering processes are put in place to monitor actions being performed. And this data is then analyzed and transformed into information, which is very important, the transformation to information, to identify process areas for improvement, new development, or elimination. Because right. as you grow, some things become obsolete. That's right. So you want to get rid of them. And um, so the work environment is transforming from leadership by dictatorship to a collective implementation of self-directed employees. Right. And what Andy's talking about here, one thing we hit upon for it last season is that it, the, the, the starting model is uh, hub and spoke, the owners, the hub, the employees, the spokes. And at some point, you just cannot, you have too many spokes to manage. So you move from a command and control to a process-based system where you put processes in place. And then finally, once the processes are in place, you know it's going, then you go to a results-based environment. You cannot run a results-based environment without self-directed employees. 
Right. And so the employee is transforming from a manipulated pawn, basically, to a creative subject matter expert that is expected to help improve the business and lead it to success. You want 25% or greater growth every year in terms of your ability to produce on the same machinery? You don't have a choice. So the company is transforming to openly share its vision, mission, strategies, objectives, goals, and they're measuring key performance indicators with most of their employees in the 15% range. That's right. Thus, all of these companies' performance items assist in escalating the business through the 15% level towards the 5% level. So let's look at a second influencing factor, and this is group membership. Uh, group membership uh, is a very powerful driving force uh, for it creates a high performance in the business. Um, you and I are individuals, uh, but human nature drives us to being a part of a group. Uh, when we associate with a group, we feel more at ease, safer, secure, and express a need to support the group. And um, I found this ex uh, in when I used to travel outside the United States. Um, this was very, very important where you, you become one, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, as an employee in the 80% level business, there is a lot of pressure on performing and tasks given to you. If you don't perform as envisioned, and I stress envisioned, by the owner, uh, because you usually don't have documented uh, performance uh, established uh, That's right. criteria. Um, you may lose your employment, uh, thus your job security is at risk and your livelihood. And since there's no, are so few employees in the 80% group, there's little to no group membership. Basically, it's an individualistic state. But when you go and graduate throughout the 15% level, there is a movement to establish a mature group environment. And the business is growing in numbers of employees. The responsibility of each employee is becoming more specific and focused. And people are forming teams and have to work as teams. Any weak link could destroy the team and its mission, uh, thus costing dollars, time, possible failure to the business. So uh, it's necessary for the company to develop high-performing teams. Uh, think about it. How can this be accomplished? Uh, by providing education on team participation is one way. Developing and implementing team evaluations and appropriate team and individual reward criteria. Very, very important because teams are rewarded differently than individuals. Hiring new employees with social skills and links, such as you attended the same university, you're living in the same area, your kids may go to the same school. Similar interests. Providing off-work activities for employees to develop personal relationships. You host picnics. You have bowling leagues, maybe softball games. Provide on-work activities to strengthen work interrelationships. You have in-house seminars. Maybe 
you go off-site for a seminar or you have off-site retreat for team building exercises. Supporting team decisions and action. That is very, very important as a leader and the owner. And I can't overemphasize that because if you don't support what they do, they will quit providing good team activities and recommendations. So what value-added outcomes are produced by teams? Innovation and creativity. Good employee work relationships across the business. Outspokenness, truth, trust, focus, and support internal to the organization. But most importantly, continuous improvement. You go from the bottom of the 15% to the upper portion of the 15%. All these outcomes provide um, this improvement as you advance to the 5% level. So when we look at this, we can say, okay, to sum it up in closing, the performance advancement of the business is directly dependent on the gathering and distribution of potential business information to its employees. It is also important that the employees have the knowledge to understand this information. Just throwing information at them is nothing. But they have to truly understand the meaning of the information. And in some cases, I'm a visual person, so I like graphs and pictures that shows me how things change over time or what is happening between one decision and the next decision. Additionally, the interpersonal dynamics of the employees form a unit of one instead of a business of many, which creates a work environment of cooperation, focus, and comradeship. Think about that. These are really essential elements for productivity. And as a good example of this, we're just getting into it, football season. Right. Professional team play. Right. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do, and they work together. And if somebody is treated the wrong way, the whole team comes together. And and let me echo something that Andy said there um, before he gets into closing, and that is I was involved in research, and I'm going to now really date myself in the middle 70s, that we did with the University of Michigan called the Institute of Social Research and Rensis Lickard. And what he found in his research was that, and I knew this because I experienced it, he just gave it a name, is that the critical elements here are, do you have sound processes so people know what they expect? Then the issue becomes the person's relationship with the task. Then the third issue becomes their relationship with each other. And those three things you have to get right if you're going to get productivity and performance on the floor. Right processes, people capable for the jobs they've got that that they currently have and how well they work together. Now what Andy's adding to this is how do you share business data so that they can begin to, instead of following orders, make decisions about how to do a better job. Because if they don't have the flexibility to make decisions, you'll have no continuous improvement. That's exactly right. Very, very key. So with that, um, Looking at our next show, we're going to look into the roles that scheduled maintenance and cleanliness play in a work environment. 
and uh, they are very, very, very important also. Everything is integrated as what we've talked about, and so you can't have one and expect to ignore the rest. Uh, that is so true. In fact, uh, when we started at this plant many moons ago, we started with cleanliness, and the biggest thing we're going to be doing over the next month is going to be around preventive maintenance. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Andy. Looking forward to the next show. Um, this is WLE News Talk 990. The show is Richmond Biz Live. You can reach us at 844-249-5483. And we'll be back. As a business leader, have you developed a highly productive work environment? Do you create a work-life experience that is self-motivating, enjoyable, and rewarding for your fellow workers, vendors, suppliers, and most importantly, yourself? To navigate to a pleasurable work-life experience, which will provide the means for you to have a fantastic full-life experience, contact me, Andy Schuler, for a free consultation on the web at metamorphosismc.com. Hello, this is William Eastman, your host for Richmond Biz Live on WLE 990 AM. You know, when I prepare for my segment, Owner as Executive, I am acutely aware that this is the number one obstacle to business growth. So, why don't you make an appointment with me every Saturday at 10 o'clock to help you grow with your business? It will be the best 10 minutes of your week. And we're back. This is WLE News Talk 990 from beautiful downtown and but overcast Richmond, Virginia. The show is Richmond Biz Live, the only, and I do mean only, business show in the city of Richmond dedicated to business owners who are trying to realize their dream and get the payoff out of the company. And the best way that you can go about getting some help, uh, besides going to our website, richmondbizlive.com, would be to call in at 844-249-5483. That's 844-249-5483 or 844.bizlive. Okay. This is William Eastman, managing partner for the Growth Works, also executive producer of the radio show, and I'm going into my segment on performance. So again, let me contrast the two. Andy, Andy's piece is about productivity, and productivity is looking how we've aligned the equipment, how we've got the processes put in place. In other words, people are positioned to win. Performance is, all right, now what am I getting from people, either individuals or in groups, day to day? And so today's show is going to be on two issues. One is on uh, selecting the right people. How do I make sure that we've got the right people in the business? And then number two is how do I use recognition as a tool to make sure that I support and reinforce the behaviors that I want to see? Uh, because if I don't do that, then all this is basically moot. So, so let's talk about selecting right people. And this is, this is not a hard one. If, when you think about it, there's really, there's really only two things around getting the right people in the organization. One is the subject of eligibility in terms of we look at every position, we, uh, whether it's a machine-based job or a service-based job or it's uh, software-driven, is that there are things that you must be able to do, things you must know in order to be successful in that particular job. If you don't, then you're not going to make it. That's eligibility. Then we have the issue of suitability, and that is, okay, you can do all that stuff, but are you a match for this particular organization, because all organizations have and develop over time a culture, they all become, they all have kind of like a 
uh, you know, almost like their own language and their own customs and their own mores, their own rules about how they do business. Well, what's just as important is whether or not the person that I bring in, how well are they going to fit that? Or I can make a strategic decision that I don't want them to fit in. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to execute change. For example, what's happening in Southwest Virginia in my role is that I'm hiring, I'm hiring a different group of people than they have seen in the past. Why? Because I don't want to perpetuate what they've had. I want to raise the game. So let me talk about eligibility. Eligibility is basically a couple things. One is establishing go, no go criteria. Um, and, and the process that I would recommend that you use and the process that we use is that all selection of people interviewing is a two-step process. And so we have a screening interview and then we have a decision interview. And the screening interview is done by somebody senior in your organization. It could be your HR director. In this case, I do the screening interviews as the VP. And so what I have in front of me is a go, no-go no go criteria. I can take a look at, for this job, here's the things that you've got to be able to do. You've got to have a demonstrated background in it. You've got to have an education, et cetera, et cetera. Every job is different, but every job has that kind of that eligibility criteria. Number two, the second thing I do is I check references. Now, in today's world, I got to be a little bit careful about that because, um, you know, if they're coming to me and they haven't told their employer they're looking for a job, I got to be a little bit careful there. But also is the, the issue of the uh, employers now are very, very reluctant to tell you the truth because they can be sued. Even if they tell you exactly the truth that this person did X, Y, Z, that doesn't mean necessarily that they should be saying that even though it's the truth. And so checking references has become a little bit more difficult. One of the things I like is, well, about the web is I can put a name in there and that I can begin to go in a couple of different places and I can begin to screen people in terms of where they're at. We also do business with a couple of organizations that, that it screen their employees. And so we, what we've done is we've taken advantage of those services that they provide. So I have a pretty good sense before I accept an interview with somebody of who they are. Then the third part of that is to make sure that I do not ask leading questions. Okay. And what I mean by leading questions is that a lot of times what we do is we tell people about the company and what we're looking for. And then we ask them questions and we've told them the answer. And so what I do is I say, okay, I see that you had this job in the past. Let's say I'm hiring uh, for somebody to be a machine operator and I'll go, okay. Um, I see that in your, uh, your past employment, you've ran a machine. All right. What did you learn? What, what, what's the fundamental lessons that you learned from running that machine? And what I do is I get them to tell me about their experiences, what they've learned, what they think, what they think without telling them what I'm looking for. So now I put them in a dilemma because if I tell them what I'm looking for, there's a tendency, maybe not to lie, but certainly to head in the direction I want to go. If I haven't told you what I'm looking for, you have two choices lie and try to get it right or just tell the truth and hopefully that's right and my experience is that people typically tell you the truth and so i what i like is either what is your greatest successes or failures in this job or what have you learned and those are the type of things that i ask and what am i looking for in this interview do i believe based upon what i can see can this person do the job now in some jobs that we have such as in installation areas uh, we'll give them some tools and say measure this out in other words if you can do that, do that. But the purpose of this interview is to screen so you make sure that who you got can do the job. Suitability is a different issue, and that is how well do they fit the organization or don't fit the organization, depending upon your agenda. 
what I do here is I never interview anybody on suitability. I hand them over to the department or the division that's going to do the hiring and say, okay, here are the candidates. Any one of these people looks suitable to me. Pick the one that you want. Now, of course, I've already kind of, I've already seeded the ground. So the people that I didn't want them to see have never got that second interview. Uh, but I would recommend either one, have the person who runs that department or even better, if I'm going to do something on the floor, I'll have not only the working supervisor, but a couple of employees from the floor interview them. And what they'll begin to get a sense of is how well this person is going to work and how, how well this person is going to fit in. And so by doing it in that particular fashion, there is no guarantee that you can, you can eliminate bad employees or you can eliminate bad hires. It's just simply not possible. But I think if you, if you divorce this in your head and say, okay, I need one level of check to make sure that they can do what the job demands. And then I need a second level and more refined check of how well do they fit in either into the organization or how well are they going to become agents of change for what I'm trying to take the business. And that's how you make sure that you get somewhere close to the right people. And then later on, we'll talk about how to develop them. But I want to pick up on the other part of the topic and that is, okay, I've got them here. Now it's an issue about recognition. And I, I would say to you that is that without, Without making it too complicated, because I think we need employee of the month programs, I really believe that those things pay off, formal recognition, all that. Let me tell you where the game is, and that is the informal recognition of day-to-day -day catching people doing things right. One of the things I learned with the years I worked with the Ken Blanchard companies, and if, for those of you who are a little bit younger don't remember Ken Blanchard, uh, the Blanchard, Ken Blanchard was probably the big dog. Uh, for 30 years from the, uh, from the eighties through the early part of 2000 in the area of HR. And, uh, you know, he coined phrases like what you stroke is what you get, which means what you reward is what you get from people. And that recognition, especially that informal pat on the back out of boy carries far more weight than anything else. And obviously you got to pay people competitively and there's other things you got to do that are more formal, but the informal side works. As a matter of fact, I'll make a case that my new operations um, manager and I, who are a, I, I hopefully a dynamic team uh, at the plant, we have changed the culture of the plant too much. And how have we done it? What we recognize, what we go on the floor and what we find unacceptable and what we go on the floor and what we find acceptable. And what we do is we heavily bias ourselves to catching people doing things right and rewarding that informally, shaking hands, patting them on the back, soliciting opinions, thanking them for their days, their performance. We've changed the culture of a company that's been around 27 years in two months. Two months we've changed the, the culture on the floor, how we've done that by going out there. Well, what I do every day, I, I'll tell you what my calendar looks like. I have two items. Uh, one is scheduled visits where there are different parts of the manufacturing floor. I visit, they know they're going to see me at set times. And then I have what I call as a tour where I wander about the plant at certain times. For example, I'm typically hanging around by, uh, by the uh, time clock at seven in the morning to find out who's coming in on time. Now, just by doing that and thanking them for being in on time, I'm having a change on attendance. I haven't kicked any butt yet about showing up late. I shall, but I haven't had to, or I come around right, right before break to see who has gone out early or right after break on who has stayed out too long. And again, it's one of those things that I'm beginning to reinforce the behaviors that I want to see when I go out on what I call my tours, or as Tom Peters coined a phrase about 20 years ago, he called it managing 
by wandering around. And so I've done a very good job of wandering. And so that type of recognition takes you a long way because, you know, what you look at in most business environments is that you're not in competition with any other recognition systems. In other words, except maybe bad ones. And so most people in a company, especially as small companies are growing, is that the only news you get is bad news. In other words, if things are all right, we manage by exception. We don't come down and see you because you're doing a good job. It's only when you haven't done a good job that we come down and see you. And after a while, it gets a little bit old. You're kind of going, hey, man, what, what am I made of wood or what? You know, I, I'm here and I'm working a 60-hour week and I've turned out all this production and you come in and you're talking to me about this deficit. Now, you need to talk about the mistake. But if you haven't been down there during the week telling them the good work they're doing and what you appreciate, then it kind of view this as a bank account, is that when you got to get negative with people, but you want to keep them committed to you and committed to the organization and committed to their work, you better have some money in your bank account. And the only way you build a bank account is by how you treat them in terms of the positive side. And that kind of builds up an account there that when I have to get negative, I can draw against. What happens to a lot of people is they don't build anything on the positive side. They do all the negatives, and then people basically hate your guts. And then you get a totally different dynamic in the workplace. When people hate the owner, uh, you, know, you know, either they got to go or the owner's got to go, and we know the answer to that. The owner's not going anywhere, so they've got to go. And so the thing on recognition is what you stroke is what you get. And so I would recommend is that uh, I'll, I'll give you a good example. Here's my recommendation. We have a theme of the week. Every week we have a theme on the floor. And so this week coming up is metrics. The theme of the week is going to be on Tuesday when I'm back in, we have a supervisor meeting um, on the first day of the week at lunch where management provides the pizza. And we sit down for 30 minutes and we go, here's the theme of the week. All I do after that is spend the entire week reinforcing the theme. The theme of our week is going to be metrics and that we're putting in a new set of metrics this week. And I'm going to be recognizing people for either one, using the metrics in their job or two, performing good metrics. And I'm going to do the other side of that if they don't do it. Now, next week, it's going to be preventive maintenance. So next week's theme is going to be preventive maintenance. We're going to be taking a look at how people are maintaining the equipment, how often they're doing the calibration, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're doing is that every week we have a theme, and if you're looking for a suggestion on a theme, I would simply look at lean manufacturing and say, here's, a th here's, here's four themes that you can do that are easily done in any plant. Number one is a theme of cleaning. The place is clean. A second theme is sorting, that everything has a place and everything is in its place. A third one is a theme of metrics, where we're taking a look at how we're doing the business. And the other one, the, the last team, uh, theme is on standardization around labeling. In other words, making sure that everything is really clearly labeled, that nobody, it's almost an error proofing that nobody has to go out and kind of and guess on what needs to be done next. Do I pull inventory now or do I pull it later? Later those type of things. It's, it's going to be clear to them. And so those four themes, we just rotate through. And like I said, on Tuesday at pizza lunch at uh, 1130, the theme of the week is going to be some new metrics we take to the floor. That then gives me something to recognize because if I don't recognize it, then it goes away. That's how I'm getting our ideas to stick. So anyway, selecting the right people and on recognition, selecting the right people in closing is remember you have two issues. You have eligibility and suitability. I would recommend you go through a two-part two process on doing your interviews. 
One is you do an eligibility sweep where you talk to you. You don't interview people who aren't eligible. You interview the ones you think are eligible and the ones that you now know at the end of the interview are eligible. You keep and you move them on. And the second interview is around suitability. And then the other issue is on recognition. And my recommendation is that you develop a theme for that particular week and then you stroke the hell out of it. And so with that, this is WLEE News Talk 990. The show is Richmond Biz Live. The number is 844-249-5483. And we'll be back. Hello, I'm William Eastman. You know me as the executive producer of Richmond Biz Live. In my other role as managing partner of the Growth Works, I spend time helping business owners get their companies on track and paying them back for years of investment and sacrifice. However, before I can make the necessary changes, you must answer the following question. Where are you? In our research, we have identified three types of small business, 80% that are just getting by, 15% who are doing okay but wondering what's next, and then there is the 5% who dominate a market or a niche, and what they're wondering is, how do I break out? So I pose the question to you, where are you? If you want to understand this question and the significance of the answer better, go to our membership site, growthworks.net, and download our paper on where are you. Learn how to move from the 80% to the 15 and from the 15 to the 5%. This level of success and profitability is within your reach. Gain the advantage over your competitors by downloading it today. And we are back. This is Richmond Biz Live. RichmondBizLive.com, 844-249-5483. And this is WLE News Talk 990 out of beautiful downtown in overcast Richmond, Virginia. And this is William Eastman, uh, the, the managing partner for GrowthWorks here out on the East Coast, as well as executive producer of the, of the show. And I just finished a segment on performance now. This last segment of the day is called Owner as Executive. And the reason I put this one in, and this was thinking carried over from the first season, is that most business owners, unless they are escapees from large organizations, um, have never had the experience of being promoted and therefore would understand that what you do at one level, those set of behaviors that made you so successful, will make you a failure at the next level of the organization. Well, in a small business, the demands of change do exactly the same thing. Uh, and what I mean by that, if you're a first-line supervisor and you've been moved into middle management and you act like a first-line supervisor, you won't hold the middle manager job very long. If you're a middle management promoted to the executive level and you act like a middle manager, you won't hold the position very long. As a business owner, when a company gets to a certain size and you're running your hub and spoke system where you're the hub and everybody comes out from you, kind of a direct command control at some point, there's too many spokes in the wheel, and if you try to command everything, you got the spokes waiting around going, hey, i got to wait for him to make a decision, and if you don't get to them, that's wasted productivity. And so what happens is the companies begin to plateau out. They begin to flatten. So the next process, which we talked about in season one, was we go from that approach to, them, okay, let's build processes that we know that will work, and what I do as the business owner is either I manage the processes or at this point, I've hired some managers in the organization. I have the managers manage the processes. And once I know the process is in place and the metrics are demonstrating that, yes, they're being complied with, then I can move over to more of what is a traditional corporate approach, and that is I manage by results. And so part of this owner as executive is to help business owners think through 
from going from command and control and kind of being, you know, the benevolent uh, autocrat uh, to somebody who has got a system operating. Because I can tell you right now, before we get into uh, the topic area, and it's going to be a focus of next uh, season starting in October, is that one of the questions that you'll be asked when it's time for you to sell, if that is what you intend to do, is how scalable is the company? And the fundamental scalability problem or issue or answer to the question is going to be, can the company survive without you? So if you haven't done any of what we're talking about, the answer is no, and therefore the company's worthless unless you stay there working. Now, why would you sell the business and stay on as an employee? I mean, the whole idea is you built this dream, sell it so you can go to Florida or wherever it is that you're going to go hang out and drink tequila, okay? Kind of my view of the of the universe. So, okay. So now what we're going to talk about here in this segment is is making really good decisions, uh, but decisions that this is now more than just you looking at it making good decisions. This is more of impressions within the organization that we are making good decisions because when people in the company hear that we are going to go in X direction, what is the general feeling about that? And so if you don't have a good track record as the owner of making decisions, then people are going to get a little squirrely. And so you're trying to get commitment around this new direction and people are kind of play it safe going because they'll remember the last time that you, uh, let's say you had this great brainstorm and you bought out another company or took out the inventory of another company in an associated industry, but not in yours. And you wound up wasting that money. And there's a warehouse full of stuff three years later that you couldn't sell. That really hurts you. And so my thing here is, okay, how do I get, how do I make better decisions, but also how do I get commitment to my decisions? Now, last week when I was, I was talking about, in fact, I've done this for the last couple of weeks. What I've been talking about is this issue of building a common problem solving model within the organization. So I'm going to just do a quick review of that. Okay. And that is that the, the way that I, uh, the way I make change in the organization is I change how people think. And so how do I change how they think? Well, the problem-solving models that we use are basically this. One is the, the, the five whys. You ask why five times. And the reason you ask why five times is that you don't know whether you're dealing with a symptom or the problem. So if somebody says, well, the machine broke down, well, why did it break down? Well, it broke down because we tried to uh, run it on this size bit and it didn't work and it overburdened the machine. Okay, well, why did that happen? Well, what at the, at the headwaters of this, as you're swimming upstream, you find out, that we've totally neglected preventive maintenance. So the real issue here is not the machine breaking down. The real issue here is why aren't we doing our preventive maintenance? And it could be that we don't have the personnel or we don't have the expertise, et cetera. So once I do that and I say, okay, now we got analyzed the data and there's only four reasons in business why something doesn't work. It's materials. All right. The mater- typically the raw materials that you're using, uh, they're not adequate. They're not right. They don't work. It's manpower. The people that you've got doing the work are making mistakes. It's methods, the processes that you put in place, or it's the machinery itself. And so I look at those four and say, what are the potential causes of each one of those of the problem? So I can identify the root cause. And I say, okay, let's take a look at those. And then for each one of the potential solutions is what are the consequences of if we take that out? And what I'm looking at here is not only the positive consequences, I'm looking at the negative consequences of what potentially can happen. Because sometimes what you'll find is even though it's only, let's say it's only 
that potential negative consequence is so significant to the firm, I can't even risk a 20% and go, that choice is out. And so what I do from that is that I rule out the consequences that are unacceptable and I say, okay, what's the best of the rest? That's what I mean here in decision-making. I have a common model for how I make decisions and I've instituted that because I've trained people in the organization to make their decisions based on the same model. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling people what to think. I'm training people how to think. And this is a far more challenging issue. As Andy talked about earlier in the productivity piece with sharing information is that I'm not telling people what to think. I'm helping people on how they think. And the more you can improve their thought processes and their ability to deductively reason um, or inductively reason, if depending upon what the problem is, the better off you're going to be. So one is we have a common model. Everybody understands. Number two is I go out and I solicit input. I do not make a decision out of my office and announce it. Even though I may be taking extra time and I may be talking to people who really do not have much to offer, I'll tell you what, the fact that they gave me input is going to take me a long way because I can tell you that uh, the quality of a decision is not necessarily the, the quality of the decision. It's the quality of the uh, commitment to make decision work that really happens. If you gave me two choices, a perfect decision that only the owner buys into, uh, that's choice A. Choice B is a decision that's 95% right, but everybody buys into. I think you know where I'm going. Decision B is going to go a whole lot easier and a whole lot farther because people are committed to make it work. So how do I get that done? One is we have a common model. Number two is I solicit input from all the different areas. Number three is that we never implement within the organization uh, across the board. We test, we test, we test, or we pilot, we pilot, we pilot, or we beta, we beta, we beta. In other words, we think that this will work. I've solicited the right people. We've looked at it the right way. Um, we haven't had analysis, uh, 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 analysis paralysis, but we've, we've vetted it fairly well. And now what we're going to do is, all right, let's take it to the floor or let's take it to a de particular department and let's roll with this thing and see how it goes. And what you're looking for here is you want a quick win or a quick failure. There's nothing wrong with failure if it happens quickly. Why? Because it isn't going to cost you a whole lot of money. And so that's really the thing that I want to do because also I'm training people in the facility is that if we try something and that didn't work, we go, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. Why didn't that work? Let's try it this way. And the second one works. I mean, that's incredible because not only does that build commitment in the organization around that particular decision, it trains them how to think and how to solve problems. Because if we're going to have, especially a results-based organization, Let's say you were a business owner out there right now and you're struggling to get to the $10 million mark. My guess is in revenue. My guess is the reason you're struggling to get to 10 million is you don't have the process in place. You've been trying to manage the damn thing and it's just bigger than you can manage. You don't have enough time every day to get it all done. And so you're trying to put the, the processes in place. But your dream is that this really ought to be a 30 or $40 million firm. I can guarantee you is that if you don't have a shared problem-solving, decision-making process within the organization where people can engage and do it at their own level, you're not going to get the $40, $50 million in revenue. You can't do it because you're one man and your organization doesn't have the capability of doing that. After you've test, test, tested, then you implement it in the organization and you make the necessary changes in the organization you got to make. 
And this change, it could be the change of recognition system. If you're doing any type of performance management, it's, it, it, you can go there. But th at that point, I think it gets relatively easy. I think it's the earlier stages that have, that give us the most problems. I would say that all of you out there in the, uh, out in the audience, or those of you who have downloaded the podcast, one of the places I would recommend if you're saying, gee, that's an interesting approach. Where should I go? What should I read? There was, um, um, there was a book called the great game of business. And I believe that was written by Jack stack back in the nineties, or there's a, well, John case wrote a book called opened, uh, open book management. Now what both these guys were, they're business owners who turned their companies around by sharing business information. So part of that is this book is really relevant to where Andy was, but also is that not only did they share business information, the right information, what was relevant to the person's position is that guess what they did when they did that? They taught them how to problem solve and they taught them how to make decisions because they, they gave them the methodology to look at, all right, how do I solve that particular piece of information, which is what we've been doing in our own experience um, in Southwest Virginia is by doing this thing called, we call the profit driver tree is that we allow person in a position to see how their behaviors affect the revenue line or the expense line or both lines, depending upon the job. And then we say to them, okay, our goal for the year is either a 15% increase in productivity or a 15% reduction in cost. And some people have one or the other, and some people have both of those bogeys, but that by getting people focused on that, then we can make the improvements in the business. But really this, what this segment is about owners, executive is to build within the organization, a common model for approaching problems. Because then if I do this, what I can begin to do is that I can begin to delegate some decision-making, some problem-solving and decision-making lower into the organization. Instead of my personally solving, we've got a defect problem in one particular area of the production process, or we have a reoccurring uh, customer complaint in one of the areas, rather than getting personally involved and in trying to figure out and solve it, um, which by the way is dysfunctional because next time there's a problem, what do they do? They wait for you to come on down. I can delegate this down to the right people and say, okay, I want you to come back to me. Number one, with an analysis of what the, you think the problem is. And I would like at least two, if not three solutions on how to, on how to fix that. And then what you can do is you, because you know how they're going to approach the problem, you know how they're going to look at the information. They know how they're going to analyze the data. And when they come back to you, you can be fairly confident that what I have are some really good decisions or some really good options that I can pick through as a business owner. So in conclusion, there is that what I got to do is I've got to create the sense in the organization. And the big part of this is I'm in a company that when we make business decisions, the business decisions are well thought through. And if people feel that way, then it's easier to get them on board and committed to make it happen. So that, that's my piece there. Now, let me kind of close out, you know, Andy, you know, Andy and I, and all of us, you know, Mike Carroll, uh, Linda Heath, uh, Patrick Carroll, we all go back and forth on this 50, uh, on this 515 and 80 concept. So let me kind of close there is that, um, when we talk about that, we, you know, what we were hitting on is the data that says that about 80% of the companies in the United States, small business today are just hanging on. And season one was dedicated to those companies trying to go, okay, how do I get the break even so that I can break through? This season is all about the 15% of the companies that have got beyond the break even, 
that they're doing reasonably well, but they're asking the question of where do I go now? What's the next move in my company? And that's what we're, that's where we're at in this particular season. And then if you say to yourself, well, you know what I want to do is I want to move into the 5%. I want to become a market leader. I want to dominate my niche, uh, whatever that may be. Then in season three, which stocks starts in October, we're going to be talking about that. And we're going to be talking about how scalable is the business and how saleable is the business. So those are the issues that we're going to be faced with. So next week, um, let me see what we got next week. We got Linda Heath coming in and talking about cash flow forecasting. We've got um, uh, Mike Carroll coming in and talking about sales forecasting and compensation. And then I'm going to be talking about selling, especially what do you do when new sales are overwhelming service to existing accounts. So with that, wealth and prosperity to everyone. This is WLE News Talk 990, Richmond Biz Live. Have a great week. Listen live at 10 o'clock every Saturday on WLEE News Talk 990 or download our podcast at richmondbizlive.com. Every show, we tackle those issues in marketing, sales, people, customers, and finance that are limiting your success. If it's time to get paid back for your years of investment and sacrifice, join us this Saturday at 10 o'clock for Richmond Biz Live.